0: In 2002, then-Governor Jane Hull signed Legislative Act 41-4201. With this act, Arizona offered official recognition to a group that had been acting on their own for the past 45 years. Back in the late 50s, the remaining members of an even older organization that had been gone for nearly half a century at that point gathered together and created a volunteer organization aimed at supporting law enforcement. Today, this group is an all volunteer, unpaid, nonprofit organization that provides auxiliary support to law enforcement agencies, offers security services to government and nonprofit entities, and supports youth activities throughout the state. They operate as 22 semi-independent satellite companies, or posts spread throughout the state, and members receive extensive training and must qualify for the Arizona Peace Officer Standard of Training with firearms, batons, tasers, handcuffs, and pepper spray. However, each member also has to pay for their own training and equipment. As much as I love to tease people with these intros... You should all know by now that I'm talking about none other than the Arizona Rangers, who still offer these services down to this very day. Hole's signature affirming that the state of Arizona recognized this group is a little ironic, seeing that it came just a century and a year since their initial formation, and just a little over 90 years since the territory of Arizona told them to disband entirely. But I guess all that dogged determination they displayed catching criminals along Arizona's border region was enough to ensure that their legacy would never truly die. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you are listening to A Z, The History of Arizona. Episode 148, The Arizona Rangers, Part 2, Merely in a Day's Work. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to the second part in our little series on the original iteration of the Arizona Rangers. Of course, as I freely admitted last week and on social media, this is really the second part of the episode I wanted to put out last week before I fell down my Burton C. Mossman rabbit hole. I will also admit that it was slightly also an Emilio Kosterliski rabbit hole because, man, that guy lived an interesting life. The natural consequence of falling into those rabbit holes is that I managed to stretch out a single year of the Rangers' existence into a 26-minute episode. That maybe won't be a problem with the next seven years because, spoiler alert, this iteration of the Rangers will only be around for another seven years. But let's dive in and see how many rabbit holes I managed to fall down this week. So after his commission came to an end, and after causing an international incident by arresting Agostino Chacon, Mossman leaves Arizona behind him. To replace him as captain of the Rangers, Governor Alexander O. Brody, who I name-checked in episode 146 as being the major in charge of all Arizona Volunteers and what would become the Rough Riders chose a man named Thomas H. Reining, and at least I think it's pronounced Reining, it's one of those weird names that has a Y randomly inserted in place of an actual vowel. He was born in Norway in 1866, so any Norwegian-speaking listeners out there can maybe tell me how to actually pronounce his name, but his family immigrated to Wisconsin when he was only two years old. By his late teens, he was in Texas, where he enlisted into the Cavalry, where he would have quite a career fighting Amerindians. He fought the Cheyenne under General Philip Sheridan, who would become General of the Army, and have many back and force with General Crook over the Chiricahua Apache, which we have covered at length. According to one source, Reining then transferred to Arizona, where he fought against Geronimo, and was present with Leonard Wood, another old friend, when Geronimo surrendered. After that, he was in the Dakota Territory fighting against none other than Sitting Bull in the Ghost Dance War. Receiving an honorable discharge from the army in 1891, after a good six years of service, Reining would settle down in Tucson, where he became a building contractor. Fast forward a few years, and Reining learned about the recruitment of men to go fight in Cuba. So he, of course, joined the Rough Riders. It was through this service that he got to know future Governor Brody, who was happy to appoint his war buddy to the post of Captain of the Arizona Rangers in 1902. Reining would also captain a different force than Mossman. In 1903, less than a year after taking over the position, the governor and the territorial legislature apparently thought the Rangers were doing a good enough job that they should expand the force. So they gave Reining a whopping 12 more guys to patrol with, bringing the total to 26 rangers, a captain, a lieutenant, four sergeants, and 20 privates. He would also dismiss all the rangers that had both served under Mossman and been involved in all the hullabaloo in Bisbee that made them so unpopular. My sources on this don't seem to imply that this move was retaliatory, but still, nine months after Reining took over, only three of the rangers who had served with Mossman were still around. Under Reining's leadership, the Rangers headquarters moved from Bisbee down to Douglas, which was his attempt to comply with a territorial statute that declared, quote, The captain shall select as his base the most unprotected and exposed settlement of the frontier, end quote. Reining definitely did not have a high opinion of Douglas, which was only a couple years old at this point. In fact, the new captain was the source of the quote I used last week that declared the border town full of cattle thieves, murderers, and the worst men from both the U.S. and Mexico. The town was still very rough and tumble, and not a lot of people there had a use for law enforcement. One saloon keeper, the brother of a famous Texas outlaw, declared that he would kill a certain ranger named William Webb if the latter set foot in his establishment. Well, Webb did go into the saloon one night to investigate a shooting. The saloon keep thrust a gun into his face, but Webb quickly drew his own pistol and shot the man through the heart. Reining and two other rangers were quickly on the scene, with Reining shooting a gun-toting crap table dealer in the arm and one of the other rangers being shot in the lung. My favorite bit is that after clearing out anyone itching to pull a trigger, Reining locked the doors, drew a diagram to help in Webb's eventual court proceedings, then helped the saloon's co-owner scoop up money that had fallen from overturned tables with a stove shovel. Webb would be cleared of the killing by a tombstone court, but newspapers ran salacious stories that the ranger had been drunk and bar hopping, or that the saloon keeper didn't actually have a gun in his hand. The bar also burned down a few days after the incident, leading to whispers that there had been some evidence inside damaging to Webb's case, so the rangers had gotten rid of it. Most of the witnesses that showed up at court testified that Webb was justified in shooting the saloon keep, but that didn't keep people from talking about the killing. But when they weren't getting into scrapes with the colorful characters in Douglas, the rangers were actually out doing their jobs. Historian Jay Wagner tells us that Reining and his men worked extra close with the Livestock Sanitary Board and the Arizona Cattle Growers Association on their primary mission to ferret out cattle rustling. They would often attend roundups and serve as livestock inspectors, especially along the border. Wagner tells us that the average ranger rode about 390 miles per month. And between 1903 and 1904, they managed to arrest well over 100 rustlers while returning animals to their rightful owners. One of the biggest issues, though, were rustlers who posed as honest ranchers. The Taylor family near the Chiricahua Mountains in Cochise County were the prime example of this, as their neighbors knew they were stealing cows from them, but never had any proof to back this up. Determined to put a stop to this, Reining came up with an ingenious solution. He and another man roped 13 unbranded calves belonging to the neighbors, made incisions in their bellies, into which they put in Mexican silver coins. After sewing the animals up, they then helpfully herded them toward the Taylor family ranch. When they returned six months later, sure enough, each of those calves now carried the Taylor brand. Both the calves and the head of the Taylor clan soon found themselves up in Tombstone where Taylor was charged with cattle rustling. According to state historian Marshall Trimble, at one point during the trial, Reining was able to lead the whole jury outside to where the calves were being kept. He then explained to them what he had done and proceeded to cut into each calf and remove the silver coin as evidence. Needless to say, the jury came back with a very definitive guilty verdict, and Taylor up and sold his ranch as quickly as possible as part of a deal with the court to leave the country at once. His neighbors bought up his land for $16,000, a mere eighth of its actual value. Incidents like these caused Reining to tell Governor Brody in 1905 that cattle stealing was, quote, practically wiped out in Arizona, end quote. However, the rangers sometimes had another obstacle. Local law enforcement and judges who were not only sympathetic with the rustlers, but sometimes straight up in the league with them. Wagner tells us about how one ranger took it upon himself to straighten out a justice of the peace in the border community of Tres Amigos, West Nogales. This justice of the peace, obviously, was in the back pocket of some of the local desperados, so the ranger literally chained the man to a tree and lectured him about the error of his ways. He then went and got reining, and by the time the captain was on scene, the judge swore that he was a changed man and that he would administer justice fairly from that moment onward. But since the ranger's commission was not solely about wrestling, they also continued to pursue all manner of outlaws and fugitives. Wagner relates how a group of rangers went undercover disguised as a cowboy wagon, to get close to and nab two Odom murderers who had been protected by their fellow Amerindians. Early state historian James H. McClintock relates how the rangers were involved in a series of escapades, including killing two notorious former convicts who had been stealing horses. Henry Wheeler, whom we'll deal with more in a bit, had a confrontation with an outlaw in Benson that ended with the outlaw on the ground with four bullet wounds and Wheeler being disabled for months. And in a maddening case of not giving enough information, McClintock tells us that Reining once captured an outlaw named Willis Wood, taking the man from a room full of his friends. And I don't know about you, but I want to hear more about that story. McClintock does end his recounting of the Rangers' exploits with the pithy statement, quote, all such things were merely in a day's work, end quote. Speaking of outlaws and fugitives, I want to follow up with something we discussed last episode, that is the outlaws Bert Alvord and Billy Stiles. After abandoning Mossman during his capture of the murderer Chacon in 1902, Alfred once again hooked up with his partner-in-crime Styles, something that would land them both in jail in December 1903. However, they managed to break out again and continue their life of crime along the border region. They were so notorious that at one point they had a $10,000 price on their head, dead or alive. As part of a cross-border strategy, Reining and two men were given the green light to head into Sonora and try to flush them out. There they worked with the rural police force known as the Ruralis, Colonel Kostoliski and his forces, as well as Americans living in Sonora who were tasked with trying to flush the men out of their hiding places. However, the Ruralis opted to depart from Reining after the captain decided to ride into a narrow box canyon after the two outlaws. The Mexicans were probably the smarter men here as Reining and his men were ambushed in that canyon and forced to give up their pursuit of Alvard and Stiles. Though Reining did try to turn defeat into victory by saying that he had managed to capture a well-known Mexican thief during his retreat. The dark coda to that is that Reining gave the thief, who one of his men recognized as having killed a man in Bisbee, over to the Mexicans, citing it was their jurisdiction. He then stood by while the Mexicans made the man literally dig his own grave before they shot him. Just to wrap things up, Albert would eventually be captured by a group of rangers and local law enforcement on the Young Ranch, just west of the Mexican town of Naco along the international border. However, he's destined to eventually flee the country and die in Barbados. Stiles would never be caught, but would be the mastermind behind some daring borderlands robberies. Apparently, he had enough Mexican friends to keep his exact location below the international boundary hidden. And Stiles would actually get away, dying in Nevada in 1908, far from the border officials that he's so frustrated. So, well done, Stiles, I think? Still, the whole drama with Alverdin and Stiles shows that the understanding between the Rangers and other American law enforcement officers with their Mexican counterparts remained active and fruitful. Trimble notes that this cooperation could work in a variety of ways. For example, a well-known American outlaw in the Sonoran mining town of Cananea could find himself at the bar having drink after drink with a pretty girl. However, this was a plant who would slip him a Mickey before Rurales came in and slipped a gunny sack over his head. Next thing he knew, he was being delivered to a ranger waiting at the international border. Finally, Wagner relates an incident where the rangers and federal law enforcement actually stopped a group in Douglas who were planning a revolt against the government of Mexico. A raid led to the apprehension of 12 of these revolutionaries and confiscated arms, percussion caps, flags, dynamite, and a whole mess of documentation. So add that to their list of accomplishments. All told, the Rangers arrested 1,052 people on all sorts of charges just in the fiscal year 1904. By 1907, they reported having made more than 4,000 arrests. Now, so far, the Rangers' job had not changed that much from when they were originally formed in 1901. However, after Reining took over, the Rangers also got involved with massive strikes happening at the mines in Marinci, Clifton, Bisbee, and even down in Sonora. Now, I don't want to talk about these incidents too much, because I plan to cover the strikes themselves much more intensely in coming weeks and months as we explore the forging of what was known as the Copper Collar. But suffice it to say, these strikes were basically about what all strikes are about. Pay, hiring cheaper immigrant labor, and unionization. During some of the more tense situations arising from these strikes, the Rangers were called in to act as a peacekeeping force. Another way to put it is that they were sent in as strike busters. And Trimble tells us that this actually cost them a lot of goodwill in the press, who were not exactly happy that the Rangers were inserting themselves into these labor disputes. However, as you might imagine, the mining companies loved this, and even gifted Reining an expensive gold watch for his part in curbing the strike in Morenci. As for Reining, his time as captain was quickly coming to an end, but before leaving office, he would participate in the strikes happening down at the copper mine in Cananea, Sonora in 1906. This volatile strike threatened American interest and lives, and desperate messages were sent north about the colony needing help now, now, now. Reining would lead a force of more than 250 men, mostly made up of residents from Bisbee, down to the border where they halted. Reining then met with the governor of Sonora and explained the seriousness of the situation in Cananea. The governor then let the Americanos cross into Mexico, where he swore them all in as Mexican volunteers and allowed them to take railroad cars down to Cananea. Even though most of the danger to American interests was over by the time Reining and his group arrived on scene, They still got in a little bit of peacekeeping before turning over the city to none other than Colonel Emilio Kosterliski, whom I'm so glad we've actually talked about. Pretty soon the actions of Reining and the Sonoran governor were ratified by both countries, so there was no international incident this time. Once again, I'm sorry for the very brief recounting of these strikes, but we will be coming back to them. Reining would leave his position as captain of the Arizona Rangers in 1907, opting to take a job as superintendent of the territorial prison. That same year, the territorial legislature had voted to move the prison to where its descendant stands today, that is, Florence, and Reining would oversee a lot of the construction of the original prison there. He would serve as prison superintendent until 1912, when he was removed by the state's first governor but would be appointed again in 1921. Later in life, Reining would move to San Diego, where he served as an undersheriff and deputy marshal before dying in 1941. Taking his place as captain of the Rangers was a man named Henry Wheeler, a former soldier and longtime ranger. While Reining had been an able administrator who didn't often make arrests, Wheeler was always in the thick of the action. He was apparently known for being involved in a lot of gunplay, though he always claimed that he never fired the first shot. Wheeler was involved in an incident in Tucson in 1904 where he killed a would-be robber after outdrawing him, and we already talked about him being wounded in Benson. Under his leadership, the Rangers apparently made even more arrests than before. However, the game had changed somewhat. Thanks to their dogged enforcement, the rampant cattle rustling had been curbed, and even Douglas had calmed down from the hive of scum and villainy that Reining had complained about. However, now horse rustling was on the rise, thanks mainly to a big market for horse meat down in Mexico, and I'm not going to think too hard about that. Wheeler himself would venture down into Mexico in 1908, where he found Sonora lousy with stolen American horses. He would again work closely with his Mexican counterparts to return the animals to their rifle owners, and in exchange for their cooperation, he and his men promised to patrol the international border east of Douglas. The Mexican rallies were then in yet another round of conflict with the Yaqui Amerindians and asked for the rangers' help making sure Yaqui fighters didn't cross into Arizona. Withers' time in the captaincy would be brief, just a year longer than Mossman's, And the end of his time would be a little more ignoble. You see, in 1909, the territorial legislature decided to abolish the Arizona Rangers. This move wasn't totally out of the blue, but most of the reasons behind it were purely political. In every legislature since their formation, someone had put forward a bill to get rid of the Rangers. However, the work they were doing and the need for more patrolling along the border had made sure none of these efforts went anywhere. But resentment was starting to grow from multiple angles. Taxpayers in more civilized and or agricultural counties were not happy they had to shell out to support the rangers, who were always in some distant part of the territory. Local law enforcement complained about them both because the rangers could be heavy-handed or because they got all the glory and any fees for bringing people to justice. Other opponents thought that the Rangers were having the opposite PR effect than intended. Instead of projecting that Arizona had law enforcement well in hand, their exploits only seemed to highlight that there was lawlessness everywhere, and the territory could only keep itself together with this extra bit of protection. Still, others argued that the Rangers, rough and tumble men, weren't exactly the most morally upright of Arizonans either. These often like to point to the death of Ranger Sergeant Jeff Kidder, who had been killed in Naco, Sonora in 1908. Kidder had gone from Nogales to Naco, Arizona in order to re-enlist as a Ranger, but found that Wheeler was not there. While waiting for the captain to return, he decided to cross the line into Naco, Sonora for something of a good time. While at a saloon and dance hall, he got into a fight with two Mexican officials and was shot after wounding both of them. Kidder tried to make it to the border, but was stopped by Mexican officers who beat him over the head with a Winchester rifle and brutally dragged him to a jail cell. He would die the next day still in Mexican custody. Though the incident ultimately resulted in the firing of several Mexican police officers and line officers... Ranger critics would seize on it as an example of the Rangers being just as lawless as the men they brought in. Still, as Wagner points out, it's possible that, despite all that resentment, the bill to disband the Rangers might have failed if it hadn't been for volatile territorial politics. Tensions between Republicans and Democrats were running high, and yes, I know, when isn't that the case? But the Republicans had campaigned hard against Democratic darling Marcus Aurelia Smith in the 1908 race for congressional delegate, which put the Democrats into a revenge-minded mood. Additionally, there was a huge breach between the mostly Democratic legislature and Republican Governor Joseph H. Kibbe, so the legislature sought to strip him of every possible power and prerogative they could possibly find. And the Rangers, which could be seen as the private police of a Republican governor, definitely fell under that. Now, that view is not true at all, and as we talked about last week, the Rangers were a decidedly apolitical body. But as with most things, the politicians hardly cared for the truth as they tried to cut the legs out from underneath their rival. The move to get rid of the Rangers originally came from the Democratic Caucus from Maricopa County. Democrats from the southern counties, the ones benefiting the most from the Rangers, were in favor of giving another law enforcement branch the axe, but eventually they fell into line with their northern neighbors in order not to jeopardize other legislation. And it turns out that the man who introduced the bill to abolish the Rangers was none other than our old friend Tom Whedon, one-time publisher of the Arizona Enterprise in Florence and implacable foe of James Addison Rivas. Whedon fought hard to pass this bill, and would give scathing polemics against Governor Kibbe after the latter vetoed the measure. Finally, though, the legislature had the votes, and the Rangers were done away with, much to Wheeler's disappointment. Don't worry, though, Wheeler's not done in our story yet, though the next time we meet him, it will be under less favorable circumstances, and he will not be playing the role of protagonist. The Rangers were done. But many of you know that this isn't the end of their story. In 1955, to recognize their contribution, Arizona authorized a monthly pension of $100 for the five remaining men who had served at least six months as Rangers and still lived in the state. And as we talked about at the very top of the episode... The then four surviving men formed the volunteer version of the Arizona Rangers in 1957, turning it into the volunteer support group that continues on to today. When they formed, all the original Rangers who were still around were designated members for life of this newest iteration. The last surviving Ranger from the turn of the 20th century was John R. Clark, who died in 1982 at the age of 97. And that seems like a good place to stop this week. But I hope you enjoyed riding along with the Rangers the last couple of episodes during what could be called the twilight years of the Old West. Next, we're going to turn our attention to something that we could have slotted in ages ago right after wrapping up with the Baron of Arizona. So join me next week as we talk about the infamous Baca No. 3 float, that eventually saw the descendants of old homesteading families evicted off the land along the Santa Cruz River that their families had lived on for generations. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.